Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Friday, the 17th of October, 1997, and Tim Brasher called Balmain football manager Keith Barnes with a proposition. After contract drama stretching the entire season, and with Balmain already signing Shannon Nevin to replace Brasher at fullback for 1998, Brasher was offering a revised deal to keep him at the only club he had known. Barnes was unmoved, and the Tim Brasher era at the Tigers was over. This is part one of It's My Game, the 37th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Man, I'm great. How are you? Really good. We're getting ever so close to the end of our story and particularly the end of the on-field action in 1997. We've got over the World Club Challenge hump, which was a major milestone in our story. So how are you feeling at the end of that one? Honestly, I'm still picking up the pieces from the World Club Challenge, but uh, I've got mixed feelings about coming to the end of it, I'll tell you. There's a bit of relief in there and there's a bit of excitement, but there's also a bit of sadness. Yeah, I'm feeling all of that, but let's not uh, get too emotional now because we've still got quite a bit to get through. I thought I should let everyone know what you're in for with this chapter. So this is our ARL season recap. We're not going as deep into the weeds as we did with the Super League season recap, uh, just because Super League was a a once in a lifetime kind of thing, whereas this is effectively just another season. And also, I think you would quit on the spot if I handed you another five-part million-word dossier like I did with it. (laughs) Well, honestly, after reading your dossier, it was that funny. I wanted more words, to be honest, but... Yeah, um, this I'm I'm looking forward to what we've got over the next three episodes. But let's not undersell it. It wasn't just a regular season. It was a really shit regular season. Yes, yeah. With maybe a fairy tale ending it didn't deserve, but uh, I want to say at the outset... This chapter will not cover that fairy tale ending. So unlike our previous season recaps, this one won't end with the grand final. Just because I feel like the 1997 ARL grand final story is so much about Newcastle, Newcastle the town, Newcastle the concepts, Newcastle the people, that I want to expand that coverage to not just cover the game. So we're going to give your uh, home region its due in time, but this ARL season recap chapter will get us all the way to the point of that grand final. I can just picture um, all the Newcastle listeners out there, which I know there's many, I talk to a lot, and everyone, including me, is going, yeah, of course you bloody should. (laughs) There's absolutely no consideration that you shouldn't be doing that, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so that's going to be a good one, but let's stay with... Uh, the ARL in 1997. And something we haven't done for a while is to look at the Rugby League Week uh, player Q&As that, uh, you know, differ in format year to year, differ in questions, 
But there's always a lot of gold within. So <laughs> Different I, I, formats, different questions, always the same answers. <laughs> They're the funniest things ever. I just love reading them. They're so good. And one of my favourite parts about it is the insight you get into rugby league players in the pop culture world. You know, what <laughs> movies do they like? What music are they listening to? Well, I remember being a kid and reading these and I used to look up to footballers on a pedestal, you know, and I didn't realise until I started reading this type of thing, like what simpletons they, most of them were. Yeah. And the only people simpler than league players are cricketers. <laughs> yeah. Ever watch a Steve Waugh interview? You know, just a walking corpse. Yeah, I, I gotta say, like at least footy players have personality. Cricketers are almost like swimmers. It seems like you just spend so much time in the nets that you don't have time to cultivate a personality <laughs> or you know swimming laps. Whereas rugby league players at least get out there in the world. Uh, it seems like even if it's the same four bands on the, the home <laughs> rotation. So let's look at some of the choice picks, and I'll say this covers both Super League and ARL players. But, yeah, so some real culture vultures among the playing talent of 1997. So to the question, uh, what your favourite music is, I've just picked out a few of my favourites. Luke Prittis, anything in the top 40? <laughs> to me, that's one of the worst answers you could ever give, you know, and I hear it in all walks of life, you know, anything on the radio, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of passion for life does that display? <laughs> Oh, this will do, whatever. Yeah, yeah, just put it on. and Whatever some hack radio station chooses for me. Oh, this is even worse. It's whatever the 12-year-old girls of Australia tell me I should be listening to, <laughs> that'll do for me. <laughs> uh, a real, real collector in Matt Gidley who was asked, does he have any hobbies, uh, to which he replied, I collect compact discs. At the moment, I have about 50. <laughs> Compact discs. <laughs> uh, and I think the next couple of answers speak to that as well. So Stacey Jones was asked who his favourite band was. He said, I don't really have one, but I've just bought a good CD by an English group called The Lighthouse Family. <laughs> <laughs> Those whatever's in the news at the time answers are the funniest because they date so badly. <laughs> Uh, this was one of my favourites. It's almost that answer, but it's going back a few years in the news or, or the current charts. Adrian Lamb asked uh, what his favourite CD was and he said, Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the single myself, but um, I think you put in your notes, out of all the music in human history, he chooses the Crash <laughs> Test Dummies. <laughs> uh, then there were a few like left field choices, which I like. Justin Morgan from Parramatta, a Sade guy, picking uh, Diamond Life. So that's good. It's an actual uh, a personality choice. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, as is Jeff Hardy, who listed his favourite band as The Drifters. You're talking to my heart right there. I play The Drifters once a week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Matt Ryan, I love this answer. He said Blue Moon by Chris Isaac. So Another one, all right. Well, I did a bit of a look into the Chris Isaac discography because I was like, oh, is that the Wicked Game album or something like that? Uh, and I found out there's no album called Blue Moon by Chris Isaac. And, in fact, the only title of that name in his repertoire was a cover of the song Blue Moon that appeared on an Elvis tribute album. 
Right. So again, it, it speaks to the Adrian Lamb nine years of recorded music, and, and this is your choice. <laughs> this is well, what it all comes down to. In defence of him, I'm a fan of the Marcel's Blue Moon version, the classic one. But moving on to movies and TV, Carrot Walters, a real cinephile, favourite actor, the guy who plays Kramer in Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the Walters boys sitting three abreast on a two-seater couch just cracking up at Seinfeld. <laughs> the guy who plays him as well, yeah. Yeah. I remember in my old Rugby League Week days, they all said either, and you've got it in here a few times, Braveheart, but another yeah. big one of the era was something about Mary. Uh, which one of the million reasons that the loss of Rugby League Week is still felt so keenly is that I would love to get my finger on the pulse of what the players of today are saying. Is it like just Marvel movies or, I don't know, John Wick or whatever? Like, <laughs> What is the cliche movie of choice today well there's so much choice now i think most of the younger ones are just on tiktok like the rest of the generation just crack scrolling what annoyed me about this year's rugby league week q a is that there was no consistency to the questions asked so like a great question great classic question five guests at a dinner party you know name them go and it would have been a really good chance to survey that over the course of a season but they only asked the question seven times. <laughs> but already in that seven, you're getting a sense of where players are at. So five out of the seven included Michael Jordan. Uh, two out of the seven included the Queen, which I thought was interesting. Weird. Paul Green decided he'd bring Nicola Charles from Neighbours. <laughs> I'm with you, Paul. <laughs> well, given her current trajectory, I don't know if you've seen her anti-vax screeds on Twitter, but it uh, would have been some lively conversation. <laughs> Piece of ass in a day, though. <laughs> uh, then there's some family values, like people bringing along fiancés, their mum and dad. Uh, Reggie Cressbrook at the Cowboys, I love this. He was going to pick his mum, his best friend, and his fiancé, plus Alan Border and Mal Meninga. <laughs> God, they're two blokes I wouldn't want there. <laughs> Can you imagine AB just sitting at the end of the table, just hating everything about being at that table? <laughs> Let's move on from the Rugby League Week player Q&A and talk about some of the issues at the time. And one of the big ones was drugs. There was a growing sense that drugs were becoming a problem in the game and an accurate sense as events over the next couple of years would show. This was perhaps warned in the Rugby League Week players poll where 59% of polled players thought that players were using steroids or performance-enhancing drugs. That was up from 51% the year before. Was this pre-Rodney Howe? It was just pre-Rodney Howe. Yeah. yeah, so I think there was a growing sense that people were getting away with it and you could see a lot of big guys yeah. coming around and that sort of thing and it was just getting out of control at that point. Yeah, and I think for most of the 90s there'd been these rumours swirling where certain teams would come back from the off-season like looking bigger. I think Artie Beetson's book, he mentioned, he didn't name the team, but he mentioned a grand final winner in the 90s having that same thing, coming back for that season looking a lot bigger suspiciously. So I think there was a growing sense that something was going on. And it was also, like more broadly, beyond rugby league, it was an evolutionary kind of time in performance-enhancing drugs. So... Uh, in a Ian Head's Rugby League Week article, he interviewed a bodybuilding expert who said that anabolic steroids are now almost redundant. 
And I, I think you've joked about, about it in the past that the term anabolic steroids, like it's kind of so far like left behind now. Yeah. And this is a real pivot point where the Ben Johnson type steroids were kind of falling away and the new, you know, the growth hormones were coming into vogue, which were a lot harder to detect and was the way the culture was going in terms of performance enhancing drugs. So some tests were starting to come out. So there were three positive steroid tests, a a masking test and, you know, some recreational tests as well. So it was becoming more and more of a talking point in the game. Early 1997, you had an actual positive test and a ban, which this one has just so completely fallen off the radar. It just never got talked about throughout this bloke's career, but Clinton Shafosky, who at the time was a young crushers player, just starting out in his career. This is the thing, man. This thing that always annoys me about the hypocrisy of all this bullshit. I mean, you won't catch me saying a bad word against Clinton Shafosky, club legend at Canberra, and a legend of the game, really. And he's a young guy who made a mistake and paid the price yeah. and what have you. So that's all well and good. But then he's lauded as a hero when some other guy, Rodney Howe, for example, is a pariah to this day and everyone kicks him while he's down. And then these other guys, Mad Dogs, made $100 million off freaking protein powder. Yeah. And it's all laughed out of the um, laughed out of the memory bank. I totally get where you're coming from in terms of hypocrisy and, and why some players wear it, some players don't. And I'm not saying this is across the board, but I really think in rugby league culture, so much comes down to putting your hand up. Yeah, definitely. And from the start, that's what Shafkowski did. In an interview, he talked about how remorseful he was. And he said he actually came home and his dad noticed you know, this sudden growth and acne on his back. And Shafosky said, straight away, he asked me if I had anything to tell him. I knew the charade was over. And from that point, went off the stenalazole and waited for a test. That duly came through. He was found positive. Under the rules at the time, it was a first offence. So there was going to be no repercussions. And the club wasn't even going to be told that he had tested positive, just that Someone at the club had tested positive. That's madness. But yeah, and things changed as a result of this. What sort of the, rule is that? What sort of deterrent is that? If you get caught, yeah. nothing will happen and no one will know about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and so he went to the club and put his hand up, came out in the media and was frank about it. The Crushers handed down a six-week ban uh, and then he was able to move on and build his career. So he got really lucky in a sense, because it was partially as a result of this that the game realised with some outside pressure from the Australian Sports Commission that their policies were far too lenient. I don't think you need the Australian Sports Commission to tell you that nothing as a punishment is um, too lenient. Yeah, but yeah. but um, I think you're right about putting your hand up, definitely part of it, but also being a skinny bloke and not relying on size for his career also helped his cause, I think. Yeah, Pure front row battering ram using performance enhancing drugs. You look yeah. down on more than if you're a skinny back. And then I think also the fact that it was a one-off and it wasn't like a, a kind of broader cultural problem, whereas with other incidents, that wasn't true. So the Shafosky story came out early in 1997. In September in 1997, an expose was published in Inside Sport about a culture of steroid use in Perth. And this was going on in late 94, early 95, even before they played a game. The report by uh, Daniel Williams 
said that up to 15 players in the club were using steroids. Jesus. Robbie Kearns was there then, wasn't he? Kearns was there and Rodney Howe. So, again, no, nothing ever came out that said that Rodney Howe was on steroids in 95. But I think that could also feed into, you know, the way he's considered now, that maybe there was already a bit of a stink around him when it came out. So Corin Reading, who was a young junior, he was the only person that actually tested positive and was subsequently sacked by the Reds. But it led to this rumours of a big drug culture there. I think in our last chapter, I briefly mentioned how poorly the Reds were set up for success. And this is part of it. The way this culture was allowed to develop was that the Reds didn't have a proper training facility. So Bob Sheens, who was their um, strength and conditioning coach, he didn't have the facilities So he knew a Perth horse trainer who had a gym on his property. (laughs) And so away from the club, the players were all there training among horses. And (laughs) then from there, someone had a contact to a guy that had steroids. And so it was all happening away from the watch of the club. And like how much of it could have been avoided if... They were set up as a professional operation from the outset. You don't want to be training amongst livestock in a professional outfit, <laughs> that's for sure. But and also, horse trainers aren't known for their uh, <laughs> aren't known to be averse to a performance enhancing yeah, um, yeah. supplement. So, as a result of, of all this, the Australian Rugby League changed their policies. So, at that stage, it was a second positive test that gave you twenty-two matches, and a third gave you two to five years. From then on, it became that a first thing was two years and then a second offence was a life ban. And then the other part of it was recreational drugs, which there was a bigger debate as to whether they should be tested at all and whether the penalties for recreational drugs were out of step with what was going on with performance-enhancing drugs. So there was one incident, these were unnamed players, where a player who had tested positive to an anabolic steroid played three state of origin games for Queensland that year, but a player in the Queensland domestic competition got suspended for six matches after testing positive to cannabis. Yeah, I think the blazer culture was still not going to be leaning on cannabis for a few more years. Yeah, well, I'll read Ken Arthurson's statement, which is blazer culture in excelsis. As far as I'm concerned, marijuana is a threshold drug. My own knowledge and belief is that it has the potential to introduce users into the environment of harder drugs. I'll always believe that it's true that drugs such as marijuana are not performance-enhancing drugs, but they are potentially performance-detracting, and surely that has to be of concern for clubs paying footballers vast amounts of money. I think there's two things there. Firstly, the gateway drug kind of thing. It seems like this wild moral stance that has no place in the policy of a professional organisation. You're dealing with grown adults and saying you can't take cannabis because it's a gateway drug. I don't think that is the place of the governing body of the game. I've got sympathy for Arco there. I agree with him on the gateway drug stance, but I don't know whether it's the place of the organisation. Like you said, they are adults and they do celebrate them sculling booze by the Barrel. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing is the performance detracting thing. To me, that makes a lot of sense that clubs are paying lots of money for these players. They want them to be doing the right thing. But again, I don't think that is the place of the governing body. We see it in other industries, mandatory drug testing, etc. To me, it is maybe reasonable as a club policy, but I don't think it is something that should be enforced by the ARL. 
Well, they've got um, mandatory drug testing and you know heavy machinery operators, that type of thing, which I think is a good idea. And I think it's a good idea for rugby league guys that are kicking the grubber dead by 12 metres, <laughs> make sure they get tested and wonder if they're on planet Earth. <laughs> With everything that was about to erupt over drugs in 1998, 1999, it's just a very interesting point in time. Yeah, it's hard to take pokey money and booze money and sm- fag money for yeah. how many years and then go, um, mate, I don't want you mulling up. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of gambling money, another big story in the news that year was an incoming poker machine tax, which was going to have a severe effect on rugby league revenue. And uh, Neil Whitaker was out in force sounding off against it, using his big league pulpit to, uh, I'll, I'll read this statement, The government's new poker machine tax is going to hit us all in the community much harder than I think anyone has yet anticipated. It's a tax increase on poker machine turnover that will earn the government an extra $120 million. And he goes on to talk about, you know, the evils of this tax. And then he had this line, which uh, I'll just read it out. And the simple fact of life is that if the government is to get that extra money, somebody else has to be deprived. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's, that's so, you know, rare to hear a rugby league administrator actually mentioned the impact of gambling on the community. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, the people that are going to be deprived are leagues clubs. That's what he's out in force against. <laughs> Animals, aren't they? <laughs> then goes on to talk about all the deprivation in the community that will result from this tax. South Sydney, you know, last year the juniors donated $750,000 to the Children's Hospital. Harbour Diggers gave a million dollars to Manly Hospital and now they won't be able to do all this benevolence in the community. Well, that's very nice of them that they took um, $40 million from the community to donate seven fifty. But um <laughs> uh, And, of course, what does it all mean? It means that football club grants will have to be curtailed. So Dennis Muddle at E said, we're just not going to be able to give the same amount of money to the football club, which again, I will never get past it. You're a rugby league leagues club. Your reason for existing is that football club. I, I, you know, like open a casino. How many times do we have to say it? <laughs> Maybe a, a more rugby league controversy that year was the Commonwealth Bank Cup which this ended up being the last year that that competition, which is was the, the schoolboy rugby league competition. Can we just say what a great part of the childhood that was? Oh, it, I loved it so much. My school, Christian Brothers Lewisham, we made the final a couple of times. I'd, I'd always look forward to there'd be a game that would play at maybe about 7 a.m. It was quite early on a Saturday morning. And I'd always look to see who it was between. Occasionally, we'd get a television game. And it was just such a, as you said, like just a, a really special part of childhood. Um, the funny thing, as I said, this was the last year of the Commonwealth Bank Cup for reasons that we're about to get into. But when I started doing the research, I was like, oh, the Commonwealth Bank Cup ending, that just really killed, you know, the vibe of schoolboy football. Like it was just never the same after that. And then I realized, oh, no, it was I was about to leave school. And, and, you know, subsequently my interest in schoolboy football was done. So I'm sure like school kids of today, maybe they don't have the same TV coverage, which is a shame. Um, But the reason for the ending of this sponsorship was an all-in brawl between Camp Hill State School and Clairvaux McKillop, two Brisbane schools. There was a, a brawl that ended up seeing 22 players 
fronting the judiciary, two players getting one-year suspensions and a, a really ugly look for, a, you know, a, a Commonwealth Bank Cup game. My position on these brawls is always the same. They blame the schools, they blame the clubs, you know, and then what are you going to do about it? It's like, what can you do about it? Is you've got idiots there whose yeah. whole reason for existence is someone saying, what are you looking at? And then having to stand up and look hard in front of their other idiot mates. You can't reason with those people. You can't stop it ahead of time. All you can do is hand down massive punishments, which they did. So I don't see why everyone gets blamed for these people's actions. You know, now that my son's playing junior football, I'll always see these edicts coming down from the district. Oh, any swearing on field is going to be penalised. And, you know, there's this constant effort to crack down on various things. So I do think there is an impetus to be a bit more proactive. And there had been similar brawls, you know, one earlier that that season and, you know, several in the, the seasons preceding it. So I get where you're coming from. But I also think it's something that needs to be enforced beforehand. You know, schools that makes sense. making sure they're feeding the message to the players that, you know, your rugby league career at this school is over if there are any incidents like this. I see your point there, yeah. But then it led to questions as to was it the influence of, of you know, senior rugby league that was, was causing these incidents? Neil Whitaker said... What disappoints me most were claims that youngsters involved were imitating their heroes at the top. That sort of thing simply isn't going on at the elite level and hasn't for many years, which, okay, I don't remember many 22-man all-in brawls in rugby league, but I saw so many fights and so many incidents that are still part of rugby league folklore today. So it's a bit rich to say that it's just not a part of the game anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what's it? It's on the promos for Origin every year. So. Yeah, yeah. And the principle of Camp Hill, a very self-serving point, but a fair point all the same. He said, I object in the strongest possible terms to the blatant double standards evidenced in the treatment of this incident. To so decry it on one hand and then to promote the game of rugby league using catch cries of when two tribes go to war or to show footage which only relates to violent collisions and aggressive posturing is, in my view, hypocrisy at its worst. Nice bit of us covering there from Principal, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Principal Camp Hill. Uh, and from the Commonwealth Bank's perspective, they said that they had issued previous warnings. So there was an incident in 1993 and at that point Commonwealth Bank said, this has got to stop or we're not going to be supporting this competition. After the 1997 incident, that's what they duly did. They withdrew their 250 thousand dollar sponsorship and the bank's spokesperson said the bank's actions will hopefully play a role in communicating to Australia's youth that such behavior is no longer acceptable to the wider community. I do wonder how much of it was the Commonwealth Bank like looking for it out. Yeah, but I mean um yeah that's a big bank and I think that was a lot of money to them either so they probably would have kept it going until it fizzled out. But yeah rugby league can lose a sponsorship like no other sport. Yeah which uh, Neil Whitaker was furious about. He said, they've reacted in a very disappointing way in the middle of a contract. It's an incredible reaction. Everyone is being penalised now. He goes on, I love this statement. We'll continue to provide 9,000 schoolboys a year with the opportunity to compete at an elite level, regardless of this decision. We believe keeping 9,000 children a year in sport is a much more productive way of exposing individuals to the principles and disciplines that build men, rather than simply taking one's bat and walking home. I mean, blaming them because they don't want to be associated with violent thuggery. 
and also equating the responsibility of the Commonwealth Bank to the same level as the responsibility of the Australian Rugby League. <laughs> as if taking your bat and walking home was an option for the Australian Rugby League with your junior Rugby League competitions. <laughs> well, I mean, we've spoken about him before and spoken about him in fairly glowing terms, haven't we, Neil Whitaker? Yeah, I that he had a decent run, he was a decent administrator and all the rest of it. I mean, these are like the words of an imbecile. Yeah, he doesn't come across well in this chapter. And and I think it, it's so much of it is just he's got that one-page, uh, you know, column in at the front of the big league every week, which all year, and we spoke about it in our PR section a few chapters back, that so much of that column is used up for agenda pushing Whatever the most pressing agenda is that week, whether it's something to do with making Super League look bad or whether it's trying to save a sponsorship or get a new sponsorship, that's what he used that column for. But Neil Whitaker wasn't alone in some embarrassing statements. Uh, Ray Kersher in The Telegraph was outraged at the decision to for the Commonwealth Bank to withdraw the sponsorship. He wrote, The Commonwealth Bank says it's embarrassed by the sight of Australian youth fighting on the football field. And on the eve of Anzac Day too. Thank God the Commonwealth Bank wasn't recruiting for World War One. <laughs> There's been a lot of long bows to the wars drawn in this series. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that at the same time that Whitaker's trying to play down violence in rugby league, Ray Kirschler's going like, well, they're fighting. That's what we do, isn't it? Like the diggers, Anzac Day. <laughs> the Anzac spirit. <laughs> All in brawl at the school boys. Uh, and I love this. Ray Kirschler goes on. Where will it all end? Will Coca-Cola withdraw funding of the AFL competition if these racial slurs continue? It's like, <laughs> yes, Ray, that's exactly what sponsors will do. <laughs> uh, and... I can't remember whether we were still in the Citibank era in 1997, but I'm sure the Bears' major sponsor would have been having second thoughts after some of the the Bears' off-field exploits throughout 1997. Uh, The most famous, of course, took place at the SCG on New Year's Day in 1997. Do you remember this incident? Cup of piss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the answer is yes, I do remember it. (laughs) Well... (laughs) Because I, I just have this clear image of Jason Taylor on TV, hand behind his back, being escorted away from his seat. And someone um, get back to me if this is a false memory. But I remember it not like as news coverage, but during the actual coverage of the cricket and watching it, seeing this guy going, oh, that bloke looks like Jason Taylor, but not at the time <laughs> thinking that it was, it could possibly be Jason Taylor getting kicked out of the SCG covered in beer. Well, let me ask you a question. You've ever seen anyone in the subsequent years that looked like Jason Taylor? <laughs> Fair point. The answer is no. <laughs> so the incident started with a group of bears celebrating the birth of Gary Larson's son, which how else do you do that but uh, head to the SCG and uh, some of the – I'll just read this. This is some of the allegations. Allegations were made of a player putting his feet in tomato sauce and then onto a spectator's back. Another player urinating in a cup and throwing it in the air during the Mexican wave, and a third player making obscene comments to a woman. This was the culture of rugby league blokes in that era before the nationwide disgust. <laughs> yeah. This whole antisocial aspect to it. 
Mm. There's G-ups, right, that are fun with the boys or whatever, push them into the bushes, no one gets hurt. But this harm the public uh, antisocial behaviour, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so it was one member of the public in particular who copped it. Uh, Dallas Gardner was his name. And his comment about the incident was, the night became a real nightmare. They're animals, to put it plainly. I copped a hit over the back of the head. My bag was covered in urine and my shirt was ruined. (laughs) Fucking hell. They told me I was a cretid and that I d- didn't deserve to live on this earth. <laughs> I can't believe that. <laughs> the wording I can't believe. I, I, I can't imagine like rugby league players you're a cretin, let alone you don't deserve I to think live on this Gronk earth. Gronk is more likely. Yeah. Well, this is pre-Gronk, I think. <laughs> well, I think the equivalent of gr- Drongo. You're a Drongo, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't deserve to live. Um, not surprisingly, Gardner, Gardner's feelings about rugby league were changed after this. He said, it's turned me off the ARL, put it that way. <laughs> How was the cricket, Dallas? Well, <laughs> <laughs> bags covered in piss. Um. So all I knew of the incident at the time was, was Jason Taylor covered in beer getting kicked out of the game. And so he became the public face of it. He was shown on national TV. As it turned out, it wasn't his first offence at the cricket. The prior fixture, um, you know, the previous year, he was also taken away by police from his seat. Uh, During that incident, he was allowed to come back after speaking to them, but he'd also had prior incidents away from cricket. So there were incidents. (laughs) How did he talk his way back in? Uh, It was piss, mate. It was just the midi. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, all I know is that after speaking with officers, he was allowed to return. <laughs> he had a, a couple of incidents on a plane, being a bit too rowdy. After the 1996 semi-final series when St George beat North, the next day he was at a pub and tackled a bloke wearing a St George jumper. <laughs> Very pithesque. <laughs> but of this incident, Taylor thinks that he got a bad cop. His explanation was, As the crowd got more and more rowdy, I stood up on my chair and all the crowd in the vicinity started cheering me. Not because I was doing anything stupid, but because they knew me. In the middle of it all, a guy a few rows back threw a beer at me and it went all over my shirt. Because there was a commotion, the guards came down and because they'd been there before, they said I had to go. I said I wasn't going because I had done nothing wrong. Then the bigger fella grabbed me by the wrist and bent it back. I wasn't going to fight him, so I went. I had beer on my shirt and it looked like I'd been spilling beer on myself all day. But it only got there 10 seconds before that when that bloke threw it at me. So a victim of circumstance was was Taylor's <laughs> assessment. Well, let's get him and Dallas uh, Gardner under the um, witness stand and we'll get both versions. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, as I mentioned, Taylor was the, the scapegoat, but by no means the, the biggest problem. So... Uh, North Sydney launched an investigation and one player in particular came under scrutiny and it wasn't Jason Taylor. So um, Dallas Gardner, the member of the public, he was considering taking out a civil suit against prop Josh Stewart. And of the scapegoating of Taylor, Dallas Gardner said, I can't believe they haven't named names. Why should Jason Taylor have to take all the flack? I'm not going to drop off. I'm going to take civil action against Josh Stewart. I've seen my lawyers and we're pursuing assault charges. He was wiping his shoes in sauce and rubbing it all over my back. And he also got me in a sort of headlock. They should rip up his contract. 
I mean, think about that. Go to the cricket, the cheer on the Aussies, oi, 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 and Josh Stewart's got you there. (laughs) (laughs) But before we find ourselves the subject of legal action from Josh Stewart, I want to stress that he was not the alleged urinator. So that was made clear in the article. Um, But of the urination, Dallas Gardner was adamant that it took place. He said, can you tell me then how I left the ground with my clothes reeking of urine? At least two players were flopping into cups. I saw one and a mate of mine saw another one. I left the ground reeking of urine and my bag was covered in it too. Well, without being there with the uh, having the evidence in front of me, I'm going to say I believe Dallas Gardner when it comes to <laughs> league plays of the era in urine. Well, thankfully it wasn't left up to you. As I said, North Sydney launched an investigation that was led by a former police detective named John Chow Hayes. I just love that he, he was, you know, nicknamed after a Sydney gangster and, and that had to be reported that, you know, Chow Hayes is on the case. Uh, his investigation didn't extend to interviewing Dallas Gardner, which Gardner was outraged about. Um, he was fuming he wasn't talked to about the incident and he said, they didn't even apologise. The club didn't take me seriously. After I talked to Bob Saunders a few times, he told me it was wearing a bit thin. His explanation was that he didn't want to put pressure on the bloke. It wasn't the Chow Hayes, was it? (laughs) (laughs) So Hayes' findings were that, uh, you know, there was 18 of them there celebrating the birth of Gary Larson's son. Nine of them were Norse players, but this is part of the report. They were attending the game as private citizens. So, you know, it's all sweet. The, the club can't be blamed for this. And the club found some evidence of wrongdoing and some $5,000 fines were issued, but that was basically the end of it. Neil Whitaker said he was satisfied with the investigation and it was considered case closed. So after the Hayes report was submitted, Bob Saunders, the boss of the Bears, was asked for a comment and he said, you're wasting your breath. I'm not discussing cricket, but I'll talk about football. So that was the end of that scandal, but it wasn't the end of off-field trouble for the Bears in 1997. Uh, A lot of incidents, which this one, okay, regardless of the specifics, this is not a sentence you want to see a month after the SCG debacle. So this was uh, reported from Steve Mascot in the Sydney Morning Herald. North Sydney players have escaped punishment following accusations of abusive behaviour towards elderly bowlers during a car park confrontation last week. (laughs) And to be fair, the players' cars had been parked in. So really, (laughs) the elderly bowlers refused to back down. They wouldn't change their account of the altercation, but it didn't go much further than that. Later in the year, Darren Fritz was dropped from all grades after a fight at a local pub, which in his agent, Sam Ayub's words, uh, Fritz had a bit of a difference of opinion with a bloke at the pub. In his defence, look at him. (laughs) I mean, if you're willing to take on Darren Fritz, then you've probably got some bigger issues. Uh, There was another... uh, Minor incident with Mark Soden and Gary Larson having a standoff about uh, the pricing of a cab, which, again, blame could go either way with Sydney cabbies of the 1990s. So none of these like major incidents, but just a after the New Year's Day 
debacle is just a growing problem for the club. I always thought North Sydney were one of the better clubs. That's a pretty bad run. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I mean, I don't think any of them got significant airtime. It was the era where it'd be reported and then most of the time that was it and you'd move on. But the club came out at the end of the year and said that contracts will be torn up if there are any Mad Monday incidents. So the Bears did the right thing and celebrated privately at Billy Moore's house. In that era, were there any clubs that had like that Melbourne Storm culture where they were, you know, team first and respectful type attitudes? Or was it just everyone was just like a footballer? <laughs> oh, I think the latter, yeah. I can't think of any clean skin clubs in that era. You just had certain clubs that had the protection of their journalists and their community, like the Newcastle Knights, and yeah. certain clubs that didn't. But we'll move on from off-field incidents and close this chapter with a bit of a discussion about player movement. So I'm going to talk about three players who I think all in their own way illustrate something about where the game was at as a result of everything happening with Super League and the way player contracts and player movement was handled in this era. So the first of these was a player who had already moved to a club in 1997 and the second two were about two contract dramas during 1997. So the first of those was Craig Field, who joined Manly in 1997. And the writing was probably on the wall the previous year where Field was speaking out constantly about his dissatisfaction with Souths and acting up in the press. This started in the program for the World Sevens in 1996, which was a bit of optimism, really. He said, you'll see that Souths will be far more physical up front I won't be wishing I was with another club, as was the case last year. Wow. Which I love that that's just, he, you know, he's just happy to make that statement. You know, oh, yeah, I wish I was with another club. Souths are pretty bad. <laughs> uh, and he goes on to talk about how he wouldn't rest until he made the Australian team. That was his only goal in the game. He wanted to play for New South Wales and State of Origin, which... It's a big group, but he's not out of discussion in any, you know, best players to not play for New South Wales. He was a very good player of his time. It's such an interesting look. I mean, we all know what happened with his life, the poor bastard, but um, he was definitely a footballer, you know. I remember yeah. his debut, he was, he was electric and he was like a sort of Jerome Hughes of the era, but with less um, control, I suppose. Mm. Fast and could attack the line. And maybe he needed to make a move earlier. He kind of moved to Manly in 1997 after all this acting up and getting a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a whinger, a bit of a problem. So I think he had the stink about him a bit by the time he moved to Manly. I remember that being my assessment of him at the time. Yeah, interested to have any listeners that had any dealings with him back in the day. It seems like his attitude was no good. It's a shame. Yeah. At South in 1996, because he'd be out in the press talking about he was sick of carrying the club, one insider said, they're lining up at the joint to knock him out. <laughs> so in August of 1996, it was announced that he was going to Manly uh, and apparently, according to Gladys Craven in the Sun-Herald, he was telling his colleagues that he's on 575000 a year, which <laughs> reminds me of that uh, English player from a few years ago, at the Titans who was going around saying, I'm on half a mil, like, you know, going <laughs> out, out of the club saying it to people. <laughs> but the marquee player of a struggling team like Souths going to the glamour club like Manly at this era was widely lamented in the game. Even Ken Arthurson 
was against it. He was constantly speaking out about how bad it was for players to continually end up at Manly and Ace. He said, stop it or there'll be only four of you left. Which in the middle of this war with teams already in two camps and a team like South's perennial battlers, it was just a hard time. Not that I can blame Craig Field for wanting to finally get some success. So his role there was to to take over from Cliff Lyons and he was pretty straightforward about that. He said, Cliff Lyons is 35 and to his credit, he's a great player, but I'm 24 and at my peak. So if I can't keep him out of my spot, well, that's my problem. And it turned out to be his problem because he was largely unable to do that. He started the year there at halfback with Jeff Toovey playing 5'8", but spent a lot of the second half of the season coming off the bench. And it's a real incredible testament to Cliff Lyons how crucial he was to that team and how unwilling he was to make way. I was going to say Craig didn't realise that at Cliff Lyons 35 is a Craig Field 17. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had a good seven or eight years left in those legs, mate. Yeah. <laughs> so it left South in a bad position, but they were putting all their stock in the future with a young player by the name of Willie Peters. Craig Coleman, who was the reserve grade coach at South, said of Willie, kids like Willie come along once in a blue moon. He can be the next Sterling. That was after his first grade debut, which I'm so glad people in the game have a bit more sense now. Like I feel that was... Such a common statement at the time. You know, play half a good game in under-20s and you get the new Sterling tag. Well, I think about that. He had a good career in Wigan and whatever, but, I mean, what would his life have been like if that flippant comment wasn't made and then reported on? Yeah, yeah, because that's all you heard, like this hype. You know, Craig Cummel went on to say, Willie's going to dominate for the next 10 years. Like right away, suddenly the public expectation is wildly out of kilter. He's got a target on his back anytime he does play first grade. Like you're just setting yourself up for failure. Well, think about rugby league plays mentality. So he might have just been under the radar and he could just drift along and then see a gap and go through it. Now he's got every um, person in the defensive line looking to smash him. <laughs> There's no gap. Yeah, yeah, exa- yeah exactly. Uh, and that was basically the story of Craig Field. Moved on to Manly and, and maybe that didn't turn out the way that he expected, but that was where he was at. Well, let me ask you a question. When you look back on him now, forget the off-field stuff, what do you think of him when you think of him now as a player? I think it's a really like unfair way of looking at it, but it just comes back to that winner kind of vibe for me, and he just doesn't scream winner. I think maybe you're right about that. I don't know. He, just his whole demeanor, I just didn't really like. It just had this unearned arrogance, I'd put it. like As I said, I thought he was a very good player, but... He didn't really prove it, and there was maybe some consistency issues as well. So, Well, that sort of comes in a lot of sports with that naturally gifted player that probably doesn't work as hard as they could or something like that. Yeah. And he had that great start when he debuted and had the confidence based off that. I think maybe you're right about that. I remember him as being a pretty good player, though. Yeah, and how much of my perception comes down to the fact that he left South chasing glory and that didn't really work out for him. Like, would I have viewed him in a higher regard if he'd stayed with South and he'd been that, you know, good player in a battling club? Like, would that have changed my perception of him? I don't know, but... I think definitely going to Manly in that era was not a um, move of Yeah, human. yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I think a lot of my perception is coloured by that fact. Well, he got his comeuppance going to the Tigers, didn't yeah. he? So. <laughs> um, but another player who was at a struggling club and thinking about his future in the game was Paul McGregor, 
who had done it all, played for New South Wales and Australia. Great, great player. I loved Mary so much as a player. And, Me too. And, and I hope everyone remembers how good he was. I, I think he's become a bit of a joke figure in rugby league thanks to the, the his coaching career, but just super, super player. Well, that's the thing. Why be a head coach when it all it does is hurt your legacy, really? Yeah. The guy was a gun, class player. There's no one going to go, oh, geez, Mary couldn't play. Yeah, totally. So he wanted to be recognized as such. And so he got a big offer from the Panthers that he was considering taking up. He had a $400,000 offer from the Steelers and he told the Steelers that he was going to test his value and see what else he could get. His statement was, I'll admit that a change in clubs wouldn't be a bad thing at this stage of my career, but nothing settled. I would have left some time ago if it wasn't for Bob Millward. Penrith have weighed in with an offer, but so have a few other clubs. They'd be a good club to play for because I know Ryan Girdle very well and John Cross has got a deal there as well. It's very merry for me to just be like, oh, yeah, Gerds is there, John Cross too. Yeah, that'd be all right. You know, it's not like this, I'm a great player and I need to, you know, be playing grand finals and get a big deal. It's just like, what vibe would suit me? Could I see it working at a different club? But winning was important to him too. And he said that he really wanted to win a competition, whether it was at Illawarra, Penrith or elsewhere. But he said, money's not everything. It's winning and playing with a good bunch of guys. Been a bit harsh on Illawarra. I mean, they weren't that bad at the time. And it was a time where if you were thinking about the future, they had Barrett coming through, Sean Timmons, like they had this great crop of juniors emerging that you could see doing something. And of course, they, you know, they went on, they made the finals that year. So yeah, Illawarra wasn't the worst place to be at that time. So money was a factor and, you know, he was open about that, that he was going to see what he could get. Um, He came out and said, I'm in no hurry to work a deal. I've got until March to make a decision. Why would I hurry into it? I have a guarantee from the ARL. I might just sit back and watch what happens with the competition. If the two sides come together, I'll be in a good position. It makes good business sense to sit back and watch what happens. So very astute thinking from Mary. So that was in mid-September 1997. I haven't heard you use that sentence before, mate. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, you wouldn't have heard it in the family group chat between the years 2014 and 2020. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) We have to get this um, this transcript for um, for the State Library, I think. Call it the uh, disintegration of man. But regardless of Mary's astuteness and the reasonableness of seeing what you're worth and making a decision based on that, Illawarra fans were, were not happy. Predictable cries about being greedy and disloyal started to come out. I've never understood that philosophy of a small-town club loving a guy and then as soon as he wants to get paid for his services, turning on him. (laughs) Well, I put it in my notes a bit later and I want to put it to you that Mary's crime in the eyes of the Illawarra public may have been thinking he's good. That might be the charge, but I think... Sorry, that definitely is the charge, but I think he (laughs) is good. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's a phrase I was so familiar with growing up as well, which I just took at face value. It wasn't until, you know, you mentioned it that I realised how ludicrous it was that you could be charged with thinking you're good. So thinking you're a piece of shit, that's fine. (laughs) Well, there's also what they really want you to do is pretend you're not good publicly 
but know you're good internally. Yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's what they want from you. Yeah. Uh, so Mary said, they've been on my back asking questions like, is one player worth that much? It's really starting to annoy me and I wish they'd get off my back. <laughs> Poor Mary. I mean, <laughs> is he the first footballer that wants to get market value for his service? Yeah. And so much of it came down to this article, which was an absolute hit piece in the Illawarra Mercury by Peter Cullen, who savaged Mary for thinking about taking a deal elsewhere and, you know, whether one player could ever be worth the money he had been offered and going on to bag out the deal and bag out Mary's effort in this came just after Illawarra had lost in the finals to the Gold Coast. Uh, Colin wrote, this was the one we wanted, the victory that put us on the road to bigger things. But our so-called superstars from Millionaire's Row let us down. And that game, in all its misery, is no sooner over and the chant goes up from Mimas and company for another bag full of $100 notes. Cullen went on to say of that loss, and I am told Mary made his own contribution to that paltry exhibition of football. So just, just that phrase, I am told, leads to the impression that Cullen didn't actually watch that game. So uh, I want everyone to file that away for future reference. <laughs> but beyond that game, Cullen goes on to talk about all that Illawarra had done for Mary and how could you be so greedy, saying, according to the last census statistics, the annual average income for people of working age in the Wollongong area is $13,295. So McGregor on 400000 would earn more in an 80-minute game of football than your average Joe earns a year, and he still wants more. Gee whiz. Which, like, he knows exactly what he's doing, bringing average Australian salaries into the argument. Then he goes on to say, I'd imagine the 12% unemployed down here would not be insulted by 400000 a year, or the pensioners at DAPTO and all the other struggling souls. I bet the 800 miners who lost their jobs wouldn't mind lining up for it. Which, like, I'm sure they would line up for it could they put Rod Wishart over for 15 tries a year like Mary did? <laughs> could, could they bring 5,000 extra spectators a week? Yeah. And that's it. Like, he's got it completely backwards. He wrote, how much do you think Mary has taken out of the Steelers' coffers over the past seven years? The answer is millions. Sponsorships and other income generated by his high-profile status have kept the cash flowing into the McGregor bank accounts. What is his high-profile status due to? Is it the fact that he wears an Illawarra Steelers jersey or is it the fact that he was a gun player recognised as such that went on to play for New South Wales and Australia? And any and dominate for the Blues. Yeah, and any competitiveness that the Steelers had over the years was in a large part down to how good he was. I appreciate you sticking up for Mary, but, I mean, like, this is what you said, a hit piece. It's designed to inflame the emotions. It should have been just ignored on the day and now, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Um, for me, like, it, you know, going back to the talk about Newcastle people, talk about the thinking you're good, just like a statement like this in the hit piece. So Sydney-based football manager George Mimas thinks the Illawarra Steelers have in- insulted his client. Like, just that Sydney-based. Yeah, he may as well say fat cat. <laughs> Where else would a player manager wanna... be based, by the way? Yeah, he should be based in Kayama. <laughs> And then he goes on to say that no football is worth the money that Mary's on and Illawarra simply does not have the money, which, fine, but if you don't have the money, well, then you're not fit to be in the professional competition. Like, that's what it comes down to. 
I mean, there's a whole lot of mudslinging done over a simple guy wanting to get paid his worth. I mean. Yeah. And, and like, really, this is the last quote I'll do from this article, but Cullen says, Mary is a great footballer, one of the finest, but he's reached that point in his life where money speaks all languages. He's 29 and an injury risk. A lot of people would not blame him for chasing extra dollars. That's what it all comes down to. Mary's within his rights to chase a payday. Illawarra are within their rights to not want to overspend on an aging centre. That's the game. The heartstring stuff doesn't need to enter into the equation at all. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of those 800 reminders wouldn't mind being 29, mate. <laughs> so Mary responded to this in the merriest way possible, which was writing a letter to the Illawarra Mercury. <laughs> this this hopeless local rag has got all this power. Like. <laughs> it's got so much power that when Mary was asked about the situation by a Rugby League Week journalist, he he didn't respond. He suggested they get a copy of the Illawarra Mercury and read his letter. <laughs> so he started the letter saying, to the league fans of Illawarra, I'm very disappointed over what Peter Cullen had to say in his Saturday column. And, you know, makes the, the obvious argument that he knows that he's in a lucky position. He had a good deal that he's been happy for. Um, he's, you know, looking to see what else he can get, but he's, Mind isn't made up. I like the transparency with which he refutes the claim that the Steelers had put millions into his coffers. This was his quote. These are my sign-on fees for each season I've been a Steeler, um, going from 1991 onwards, $5,000, $50,000, $60,000, $95,000, $130,000, $150,000, and in 1997, $170,000. That's a total of $660,000. It must be pointed out that my total contract was worth more than the above-mentioned figures during the past three years, but the ARL paid the entire difference, which I, I just I love that transparency. Yeah, but why is he compelled to list his finances? Tell him to get stuffed. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then goes on with, I understand I'm in a fortunate position. I love Illawarra. I'd be shattered to leave, blah, blah, blah. Again, that comes into heartstrings. We don't need to go into it because Mary's completely in the right to do what he was doing. Um, So I'm just going to end Mary's rebuttal with what I think is checkmate. We could have ended the whole thing here. Um, So think back to the line, I am told, and the inference that maybe Peter Cullen didn't even watch the Steelers' semifinal. As for Peter's comments about so-called superstars letting us down, well, I see the word us, which means you being used. Didn't you come out and say you were watching the Swans and not Rugby League not so long ago in one of your articles? Are you going to ring up Plugger and give him a roast as well? The Swans are out of the competition. They aren't copying it. Why am I copying so much flack? <laughs> the fact that it really hurt him is um, endearing. Yeah, I know. Um, so as it turns out, McGregor ended up staying at the Steelers and taking the $400,000 initially on offer, which suggests a couple of things. One, that he really didn't want to leave. And two, that he tested his market. He had a bigger offer from the Panthers. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of interest, not because of who he was as a player, but just because the player salaries weren't there as they were a couple of years ago. Um, But what I love is that in that September um, interview, he was asked and said, what's the rush? Like, I'm waiting to see if the two competitions get together, 
um, see what else is there. I'm in no hurry to sign. I'm going to make a good business decision, which, as I said, very astute. This was his comment in mid-October 1997. I'm going overseas on Thursday and I want to have it sorted out before then. Whatever decision (laughs) I make, I think we'll be calling a press conference tomorrow. So I'm willing to wait until March, but then, oh, heading to Bali next week. It'd be good to get it fixed before then. That's actually a pretty good game trope, that getting stuff done before something. Yeah. <laughs> it could be the end of the season, could be the holidays, could be yeah. whatever. Uh, and in typical Mary fashion, instantly forgets about it all. The local paper gave me a serve, but to their credit, they gave me a chance to reply and I had very positive feedback from that. Really, it's yesterday's fish and ship wrapping now. I think the public know I've shown my loyalty by staying with Illawarra. That's all a league player wants is a chance to have an open letter. Yeah, yeah. If they get that, they're sweet. Yeah. Um, so very happy for Mary that he got to stay at Illawarra and then had a great couple of years after the merger too. So it was a shame he never got that premiership, but I can't spend any more time thinking about that. So we'll move on to a player who was in many ways in the same position as Mary, but that went a very different way. And that is Tim Brasher, who was asking for a big payday. So he was looking for, you know, a four or five million dollar deal over five seasons. And he put that to the Tigers. Danny Monk at the Tigers assessment was that they were a fair bit under, is all he'd say. Pretty hefty for the era. And Brasher's thing, it all seems to come down to a sense that he was ripped off because of the way he you go back to our Blitzkrieg era. Brasher was there with Brad Fittler as one of the very first ARL signings to which they decamped to Dremoyne to party it up afterwards. So temporary celebration about the huge windfall they'd received. But in the aftermath, Brasher became increasingly bitter seeing players get all these better deals than he got. So this was Brasher's statement. During the ARL Super League battle, if you want to call me a bad guy, I got ripped off. I was sold short. All the rest of the guys got guarantee guarantees, per year payments. I got a one-off payment. I got jammed that way, so people can't call me a bad guy. I've been ripped off before. I was unhappy when I found out what the other guys were getting, but there's nothing I can do about it. This one never understand. Why do they blame the clubs for their inability or their management's inability to negotiate? Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, like it comes down to the not having the manager there to negotiate, which it still works to this day. If you find out that your market value is high, you can put on a frown and play badly for a few weeks, and they'll bump you up. Yeah. You signed the deal, mm. but then there is a, maybe not a responsibility of the club, but the club having an obligation to treat the players right if they want to retain them. So ever since that deal was signed, Wayne Beavis, his manager. Um, had been trying to get an increase from Balmain and they just wouldn't move on it. You know, they weren't flush with cash, but if you want to keep your big players, you do have to be movable in some way. It's one thing to say you've signed a player for life when you do a five-year contract when he's 22, but when he turns (laughs) 27, he's probably going to have another contract in him. And if you want him to actually be there for life... Well, I've come down to the realisation now that the only person saying contract for life really, in the world, is Phil Rothfield. Yeah, yeah. If a guy is 27 and signs a two-year deal and he says he's a bulldog for life, <laughs> definitely it's going to be a Phil Rothfield article. <laughs> but predictably, once the media caught wind of what Brasher was asking for, 
the stories all came out about greed and, you know, players asking for sympathy. Like Peter Fitzsimon says, a week on, people are still talking about Tim Brash's quotes in the Sun-Herald about getting jammed and being sold short. True, getting a check equal to some 10 times the average national wage was simply not enough for the Balmain fullback. Again, with this average national wage, as if football players are getting paid that from age 20 to retirement age, especially like, you know, an ex-player and someone who, you know, holds this position as being like a reasonable person that Fitzsimons portrays himself as, to like go on with this bullshit about player payments being inflated and out of step with society. He wasn't known as a limousine liberal at that point. Yep. Sherlock went on with the same line in the Rugby League Week saying, I'm told on good authority that many $30,000 a year workers with mortgages were absolutely furious when they learned of how badly Tim had been treated. Some even offered to send in money. And I'm told the pre-bookings for Tim's testimonial functions have been little short of sensational. It's really hack. But then he goes on to make a good point, which is copper tip, will you guys? Put a sock in it. Do you really think in the current circumstances, the fans that are left want to read about how hard done by you are, which that's what it comes down to for me. It's about being smart about it. Definitely. And knowing how it's going to read in the press. And I don't even know if the public are that outraged about it. I think they probably do have a bit more sense about it, but anything you say is going to get picked up and be fodder for these kind of hit pieces. But it's funny that like a a quarter century later, this kind of attitude about entitlement of players, it still remains among the public and it seems to be about rugby league in particular like you never hear people like bagging out how much cricketers get paid or you know golfers on the pga tour (laughs) if these people knew about the future back then when they were complaining about what we're going to get in these days (laughs) they would be displeased (laughs) but so the contract dispute played out over the course of the year the tigers were basically immovable danny monk came out and said we won't be altering our offer to tim at least not at this stage. They then gave Brasher permission to test his value on the market. Predictably, he was linked instantly to Manly and the Roosters. It's hard to blame the Tigers because they had a um, a very definite 30-year plan for failure that they wanted to get kicked off. (laughs) But the thing is, and what Brasher subsequently found out, is that they were right, that the market value wasn't there. And in fact, what the Tigers were offering Brasher turned out to be overs because there was a very limited window that players could get the type of money that Brasher was after and it had slammed shut. So it sucks at Tim Brasher and fair enough, he feels ripped off, but his manager should have come out and had a conversation with him and said, look, it sucks for you, Tim. But there's not much we can do about it at the moment. There's no club willing to pay what you're after. If you want to stay at Balmain, that's probably about the best offer you're going to get. And from his words, it seems Brasher did want to stay at Balmain. He said, I'd like to stay at Balmain if I can. The club has been my whole life and my heart is with the Tigers. It's where I got my start and I'd dearly love to finish my football with the Tigers. So this kept going over the course of the season. And as it turns out, it was a pretty bad time for Brasher to be you know trying to grab this like elite player money because there were already questions about his form going forward so uh, in 1997 he still had the rugby league week players poll title so he was the top fullback with 40% of the vote but that was down from 72% in 1996 
I really didn't remember him being that high up at that point. I, it's some, somehow it's a blank in my head. I, I knew he was a great player, but I thought he was sort of off the boil by then, but he definitely wasn't But a look of it. Well, in my notes, I felt that maybe maybe that acclaim was a bit like a mixture of coasting on reputation combined with a downturn in some of the likely successes. So in 1995, Brett Mullins polled 78% of the fullback vote. He quickly fell off. Matt Sears... He was still at his height in terms of Matt Sears' career, but 1997 was probably the last time he could be argued as being one of the top two or three fullbacks in the game. And then you had the next generation, Darren Lockyer, David Peachy. The players and the public were probably not yet fully caught up to how good they were and how good they were becoming. And then also with the split competition, you know, half the game isn't really paying attention to what they're doing anyway. So I think he was a very good good player still, but you know by 1998, which was his last appearances for Australia, he'd been pushed to the wing. He managed to keep playing Origin until the end of the 2000 series, but by the start of the NRL era, you could probably say that his best days were behind him, and 1997 probably is that tipping point between being an elite player and being a player who was past his best. He always managed to produce for in the rep teams, uh, which always helped his rep. Yeah, and it's funny, I had a conversation with mates not a week ago where we were talking about Brash's place in the game and, you know, fullbacks more generally. And since 1990, I'd say Billy Slater and James Tedesco are probably the only two fullbacks I'd say you would definitely have ahead of Brasher. I mean, like Mini? Lockyer I'd put as a 5'8", you know, so I'm discounting him, but... Really, there's good players in that mix, but Brasher is still right up there. How about Mini? Mini came up for discussion as well. I put Brasher like Brasher had like basically a, like a seven or eight year run where he beat all comers for the New South Wales jersey. He was you know Australian fullback unchallenged for such a long time. I think his record in the nineties is better than any player that came since, besides Slater and Tedesco. Yeah, it's hard to argue. But as it turns out, the Tigers decided that. Enough was enough, and they eventually, in September, withdrew their offer. Brash's camp was still hopeful that something could be done in terms of a top-up from the ARL, and I think Brasher was coasting along thinking that inevitably that would happen and held out. Uh, Balmain set a deadline for midday on a Wednesday, and Brasher missed that deadline by four minutes. Apparently, he called and said he was ready to sign, but it was four minutes after 12. And, You're joking. Yeah, and Balmain said that, um, no, that's it, sorry, but um, we're moving on. Here are the two accounts of this offer. So Brasher said that he missed the deadline by four minutes. He wrote, it was a very dicey situation for my best mate from school for years. I'd said I'd sort it out. I made a call and sorted out the situation. Then I rang Balmain president John Chalk, and he simply said, too late. They thought I was waiting for another club to get back to me. So, you know, Brasher says, I was ready to sign. I got caught up. I had to help a mate. Um, So I was a bit late, but, you know, I was there. I was ready to sign, and then they said no. So the mate situation arose at the exact same time as the deadline. (laughs) Which was Balmain's line of thinking. So Danny Monk said, this didn't come down to four minutes. This offer has been on the table for seven months. If Tim wanted to stay with the Tigers, he could have signed a long while ago. He's had multiple deadlines and the time came when we felt enough was enough. It seems a bit 
crazy to allow four minutes to dictate it though, but anyway. Which I think speaks of Balmain saying, we've tried everything, you don't want to be here, so we're pulling the offer. I think that happened and Brasher like started to panic and think, oh, shit, I've you know, I've been bluffing, I've, I've been trying everything, but really what it comes down to is I want to stay at Balmain and, you know, scrambling to make that happen. What a calamity. <laughs> yeah. So he called it the worst day of his professional career, said, when they told me it was all off, I was just so devastated. I broke down a couple of times when I talked to certain people. I had to hang up on Keith Barnes because I just couldn't talk anymore. I just went out and belted the daylights out of a golf ball to try to forget it about the worst day in my footballing life, but it didn't work. I've had so many sleepless nights over this whole mess, and it's not over yet. Should have just signed the deal then, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And then he said, if Balmain had come to me four minutes late, I'd have forgiven them. I just think a few people there were peeved that I got an extension of the original deadline. It's like Balmain came to you nine months in advance. You, like, but, like, who was he playing um, brinkmanship against? If you said there was no market there, yeah, what was he doing in this last period? I don't know why Wayne Beavis wasn't, you know, a stronger advocate for, you know, what Brasher really wanted. If Beavis believed that Brasher wanted to stay at Balmain, like, he should have said, oh, look, I think your best bet is to sign. So I feel there's even more to it than that or... Wayne Beavis wasn't doing his job properly. And with his reputation in the game, I think it's more the former. As it turns out, the Tigers gave up and went on to sign Shannon Nevin for 1998, getting him for half the price as Brasher. Um, it doesn't seem as if they told Brasher in advance because Brasher was confronted by a journalist about it and said that he, you know, he had to let it sink in. He said, I'll have to think about it, which, you know, makes you think that he wasn't aware that that decision had been made. Mm. Even after Nevin was signed, Brasher came back to Keith Barnes with another offer and said he was willing to sign a new deal, a revised deal, but the Tigers said that it was over. Keith Barnes said, Tim put a figure to us, but we couldn't meet it at this stage. I assume this was his last offer to us. I've got to uh, actually respect having some backbone for once as a football club. Yeah, and... Tim Brasher's options were really limited by the fact that the game still wasn't back together and he was unable to, at that point, negotiate with Super League clubs. So he could either wait to see if the competitions would come together or do his best with an ARL club, which, again, like when there was all this talk about Brasher going to Melbourne maybe and these other offers, it's just like, just wait and maybe you end up at Melbourne and you get the premiership you so richly deserved. Maybe you get to play another semi-final match in your career. (laughs) For all the acclaim about Tim Brasher, 1990 was the last finals match he played. Which is a problem for your legacy, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So as it turns out, Souths were there to pick up the slack and he got $450,000 a season from them which is funny in itself because apparently outside of Balmain's original offer, no club was willing to spend more than two hundred and fifty grand on Brasher. So South, like comical mismanagement, offering double what their nearest competitor was offering. <laughs> I think when you're used to paying overs so much, it's just it comes natural. It's a knee-jerk thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he lands at South. This was part of a mini signing spree. Um, you know, they got... Brett Rodwell, David Hall, Chris Caruana, Sean Garlick, 
Terry Hermanson and uh, infamously Jeremy Schloss, which is a, a story for another day, um, along with Brasher. But that signing spree could have been uh, even bigger with John Hopawadi also rumoured to be going to South. Good Lord. They ended up having to pull their offer to Hopawadi because they'd been given a rescue package from South Juniors of $1.5 million and uh, their solicitors had anticipated that the stamp duty on that money would be $10. When it came down, the actual figure was $232,000. <laughs> and uh, Frank Cooks and football manager said, that has cut us out of a player. Some poor um, forecasting there. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing about this, this South's money, is this is the year that South historian Tom Brock died. Um We've played the Tom Brock lecture on our podcast feed. I'm a member of the Tom Brock committee. So that all started with a bequest from Tom Brock that is ongoing to this day. So there's a scholarship. So there's, you know, research about rugby league. There's the annual lecture. It's an ongoing bequest that that initial investment has created. South were given some money by the Brock estate as well, which it's pretty likely was squandered almost instantly so on one hand you've got the tom brock bequest committee on the other hand you've got tom brock's money probably paying for tim brash's signature or you know maybe david hall and chris caruana it's just like i, I don't know i thought that was really cool yeah, to yeah. read well out of interest well what business was he in to make his dough uh tom brock? i don't know to be honest but i you know he was like kind of a, a single man and everything was to do with the club so i think he lived pretty modestly and, um, you know, had some money at the end of his life because of it. Wonderful legacy though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, amazing. So Brasher was coming for 1998, which was going to see, a, you know, hopefully a boost to South's on-field fortunes. That was likely not to be seen by their 1997 coach, Ken Shine, who was coming to the end of his run with rumours all year that he was going to be out the door. In June, they went public with an advertisement of the coaching position in the Rugby League Week. And if Ken Shine wanted to be coached in 1998, uh, he was going to have to reapply for the job. Which, that as a trope, like when has the, the coach that had to reapply ever had a chance of getting that I know, job? Like you, you've, you've got to just cut your losses and, and say we're moving on. It's so um, uh, cowardly to do it like that, I think. It is. And then I'm also thinking about the interview process, you know, like three years of, you know, poor on-field performance and losing the dressing room is one thing. But if you can successfully talk about how you work well with others in an interview, <laughs> they're going to like change their minds. Have you got any references? Well, I've got the um, last three years of mediocre performances. <laughs> and one reference Shine couldn't count of was that of reserve grade coach Craig Coleman who uh, a substantial amount of white ante seemed to have been going on. There were rumours that Tugger had aspirations of getting the coaching job and was making life difficult for Ken Shine. Shine's comment on the statement was, Tugger Coleman is a South man, but he never supported me and I knew it was because he was after my job. I mean, is there a bigger rugby league man than Craig Coleman in the history of the game, firstly? No. <laughs> Secondly, we always sit here bad-mouthing coaches all the time, but you're in a situation like this where a club legend is allegedly backbiting you. <laughs> like, what, what hope do you have? 
Yeah, I mean, the writing was on the wall. And, and I love Coleman's response to the allegations of white anting. He said, he's a fine one to talk. He gave Bob McCarthy plenty when Bob was coach. <laughs> and really it was just a bad position for Shine to be in because, for one thing, he didn't have control over the roster and first-grade selections, which I haven't looked into it, but I wonder if this was the last instance of a club having a selection panel as opposed to the coach having the final say, which it's just crazy that that concept lasted for so long. Can you imagine dealing with that? Mm. Uh, so the world was out for a new coach. Phil Economides, who we'll talk about in the next part of this chapter, he was a coach in demand because of all the success of Gold Coast that year. They made an approach to him and then you know, leaked to the press that he was being considered for the coaching job. But then they basically told him that he'd have to put in an application and line up for the job. So Phil Economides said, if that's the way they want to do business, I'm not interested. So the coach of the Gold Coast decides that South were too dysfunctional for his liking. <laughs> Hilarious. Maybe not a surprise, but John Sattler had an idea of who the next coach should be. They talk about getting a named coach. Well, McCarthy is a name. He'd bleed for the club and players respect him and would want to play under him. South is a working class area and people can relate to Bob McCarthy, which I, I just love. Every club has it, that generation of old blokes that can't see any other option <laughs> yeah, apart yeah, from yeah. one of their own and one of their own who had, you know, <laughs> been tried and failed. <laughs> Those guys took loyalty to the nth degree, didn't they? Yeah, it really is rugby league and it's quite sweet, but also like we're running a professional organisation here, fellas. <laughs> So in the end, Steve Martin was to be the coach for 1998. 1997 finished terribly, so they finished second last, only won four games, finished the year on a nine-game losing streak. Interestingly, for all this big splurge in 1998, all these new players coming in, that netted them one extra win. Um, but I should say as well, they, they had drastically improved by their last year in the competition before being kicked out, winning 10 games. But it was clear that Souths were on the nose and there were big questions about their future in the game. And in the players' poll that year, uh, to the question which team should definitely be cut from a United competition, 53 of the 100 polled players said Souths. So Souths were in a precarious position that the signing of Tim Brasher wasn't going to be enough to remedy. But you'll hear about more uh, struggling clubs and more well-performing clubs in part two of this chapter. But this is where we're going to leave uh, this episode. Plenty of hilarious stories in that one, man. Yeah, and plenty more to come over the next two parts. So um, thank you for listening to this. And, um, yeah, we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.